Tonight's reading is from Mark 7, 1 through 8. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and uh, copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. Well, good evening. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Zach Stanton, and I'm the worship director at the, at the North Liberty Campus of Grace Community Church. And uh, it's always a privilege to come downtown and worship with you guys. I, I love to, um, to sing in this room and uh, love to just get to be a part of this community from time to time. So, and especially just want to thank Jason for inviting me to, um, to bring the word tonight. So uh, I'm just excited to have this opportunity to open the word. Um, so just to get started, we are, we are continuing in our study of the book of Mark, and we've come to the seventh chapter, and this is a significant moment in Mark's gospel. This chapter is a stark contrast from what has just come before, especially in chapter six, the last three vignettes that Mark shares. And chapter seven, the the first part of this, is one of the longest teachings uh, that is recorded, Jesus' teachings that Mark records for us. So let's, let's set up what's going on in chapter seven. In chapter six, The three stories prior to this that Mark shares are, first of all, Jesus feeding the 5,000. We have this miraculous feeding of all these people that are listening to him. Then the next thing that we see is Jesus walking on the water. And then in the last few verses of Mark chapter 6, Jesus is healing many, many people in the town of Gennesaret. As all these people are coming to him with physical needs, and he's meeting those needs for them. So in the first six chapters of his gospel, Mark has been on mission to show us who Jesus is. And at the end of chapter six, he's really laying it on thick so that all of these kingdom claims that Jesus has been making, he's backing up with supernatural power to demonstrate he is indeed the coming Messiah. He is the son of man. He is divine. So then, when we get to chapter 7, there's this strange contrast that's taking place because we have this very tense exchange with the Pharisees. It's kind of of weird to see these last few things that Jesus has done and people are flocking to him because he has these, these words, these teachings that are just incredible to them. And he's able to heal them. So, so the crowds are flocking to Jesus for physical and spiritual nourishment. But then in chapter 7, we have the Pharisees coming to him. Some of them, it says, have even come all the way from Jerusalem, which is a really long trek. And they're coming so that they can nitpick Jesus. There's a pettiness here. 
Jesus is performing miracles, and they're worried about how the disciples are eating without washing their hands. So that's where we are. And this particular passage is a, a, a demonstration of the, the dangerous nature of the Pharisees' worship. And this is a really important admonition for us because their fundamental failure is where many Christians trip up in their faith as well. So we're going to look at three different things. This, this passage is in three parts. And the first eight verses, which Maggie just read, are an example of legalism. And then in the next five verses, Jesus shares with them a fruit of their legalism. And then in the last 10 verses, Jesus lets them know what is the antidote for legalism. So as we get started, would you please pray with me and pray for me? Father, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for the opportunity to sing together these truths uh, the opportunity to confess our sin to you and just cry out as we long to have our hearts aligned with yours. And Lord, as we look into your word now, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth that you want us to know and to believe and to live in moment by moment. That as a result of this time, we would be more in love with you, that we would be more uh, amazed by your grace and have a clearer picture of it and that you would empower us to walk this out through the grace of Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, so an example of legalism. So we should start by defining this term legalism. It's probably one that you are all familiar with, you've heard used, or you have used. Uh, but this is a term, first of all, that's not used in Scripture, even though it's something that Scripture addresses a lot. And then secondly, legalism is a term that people use in a lot of different ways. There are multiple definitions, even if there's a lot of overlap between those. So I just want to talk about two particular understandings of the word legalism before we get into the passage. The first most common usage of this word is the idea that we can earn or contribute to our salvation by our good works, that there's some part of what we do that is going to ensure that we are saved in the end. A second way that this word is commonly used, and this is really more uh, appropriate for this passage, is the idea of adding rules to God's word in order to avoid sin, but then expecting other people are going to keep the rules that we have put in place. So we're adding to God's word, we're trying to do things to make sure we're avoiding sin, but we also demand that other people will, will follow those rules that we have added. And when we have this attitude, we often will assume that God is going to bless us because of how good we are at following rules. Maybe we have really high standards and we think God is going to be impressed by that or he's going to be uh, compelled to bless us because of how awesome we are. This can often lead to arrogance in our lives because we, we're so proud of ourselves. We're so impressed with what we can do. Pastor uh, Paul Tripp says this about legalism. Legalism is always connected to a condemning spirit. 
And I can tell you from my own life, my own experience, my own struggles, that that has been true of me. And I've certainly seen that played out in the lives of people who are, who are so worried about fastidious rule keeping and, and worrying about, it, are, are they doing enough to be good? We condemn other people. We look down our noses at them if they don't hold to the same standards that we do. Legalism is fueled by pride. And legalists feel justified by their actions. And legalists have either forgotten God's grace in their life or they're just unaware of God's grace in their life or the lives of other people. But they tend to be very aware of the shortcomings of other people. And legalism is really tricky because we we tend not to see it in ourselves because oftentimes it comes from a place of good intentions. Remember, we said that this second definition is that we've put rules in place because we want to avoid sin. And because we're wanting to avoid sin, that's a good thing. But we can slip into legalism subtly and not realize that that's where we've gone. All right, so there's a little bit of setup for legalism and for this passage. Let's, let's get into these first eight verses. And here we see the devotion of the Pharisees. Now, probably all of us uh, have, have heard people throw, people throw the Pharisees under the bus. It's like, it's a favorite pastime of Christians to just, uh, to rag on the Pharisees. Or to look at all the things that they did and said in the New Testament and, and think about how dumb they are. And uh, it's easy to just kind of snicker at them because Jesus is constantly reprimanding them for their, their foolishness. But let's be honest, the Pharisees were doing what they were doing because they thought it was right. They thought what they were doing was pleasing to God. And they were absolutely all in on it. And so when Jesus calls them hypocrites later in this passage, he isn't saying that they're uncommitted or superficial in their faith, which is often how we use the word hypocrite. We can see here that they're going to great lengths to keep these traditions. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. This is really tedious, right? Every time you come from the marketplace, you've bought your food, you get home, you don't know if you've maybe brushed up against somebody that's ceremonially unclean. So we gotta, we gotta do all the washing. Not just our hands, not just our, our utensils. We even have to wash the dining couches. Like we, we have to make sure we're not going to be defiled and unclean before the Lord. So they're going to great lengths to make sure they're not doing anything wrong here. And this is coming from a, a tradition, a Jewish tradition that was known as, as fence laws. So the idea of a fence law was that uh, the, the rabbis wanted to make sure that the Jewish people didn't break God's law, and so they would make a law that kept people from getting too close to breaking that law. So to, we could visualize this. If you're at the Grand Canyon, and you're, you're walking up to the edge, then this is, let's say this is God's law. If you step off the edge, you've broken the law. 
That's pretty cut and dried. Well, that's pretty dangerous. So what if we backed it up about five feet? We should build a fence there, right? Keep people from getting up to the edge because that's not safe. That's, that's stupid. So this is the idea of a fence law is we want to keep people from getting too close to breaking God's laws. Let's make other laws. There seems to be some wisdom in that initially. And what was the law or the laws that the Pharisees were fencing in this particular case? This is about washing of hands. And there are a couple of laws in the Old Testament about when you had to wash hands. First of all, if you're a priest and you're about to offer a sacrifice, you have to wash. Otherwise, you're ceremonially unclean and you cannot come into the temple and offer that sacrifice. The other occasion where people had to wash is if you came in contact with a bodily fluid. You've got to wash. You're ceremonially unclean. Doesn't matter if you're a priest. Anybody has to wash or they're not able to come and offer a sacrifice. All right, so these are two very clear-cut occasions where the law says you need to wash. However, we can see from this passage that the Pharisees have a whole lot more laws around washing. And they have done something that Jesus is particularly troubled by, and that is they are holding their traditions above God's law. They value their own fence laws more than what the Torah actually teaches. And Jesus is going to get into that in a little bit. So let me give you just a couple of examples from the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud, if you're not familiar with it, is a very large, complex text uh, that is the primary text of Judaism for interpreting the law. And it spans many, many years of, of rabbinic thought and trying to make sure they knew how to interpret the law. There's just a couple of, of uh, quotes I want to share with you. Know then that the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Or this one. Whoever eats bread without washing of hands is as if he lay with a prostitute. It's pretty harsh. That's, that's not what the law says in the Pentateuch. But they have created all of these laws because they're like, hey, if it's good enough to wash in this case, it's good enough to wash all the time. And oh, by the way, if you're not washing, that's a sin. Not only is it a sin... It's equivalent to the kind of sin that the law says is condemnable to death. So Jesus, Jesus is not happy with what they're doing to the law by piling on all of these pious commands that have nothing to do with honoring God and treating them as though they're absolutely necessary. Jesus is not at all impressed with their piety. Let's look at what he says in verses 6 through 8, where he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. Starting in verse 6, Jesus says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says to the, the religious leaders of his day, your worship is vain. God is not worshipped by you. 
This is all a matter of worship. If we want to look at the big picture of Scripture, this is a matter of worship because the the Pharisees are saying, these are the things you have to do to, to properly come before God. And all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is very clear that worshiping God is not a matter of singing songs. It's not a matter of offering the right sacrifices or tithing the right amount. Those are external things, but all of those external things, God says, must flow from a heart that actually honors God, loves God, and loves the people that God has called us to love, which is everyone. And so Jesus quotes all the way back from Isaiah because this is not a new thing that Israel has struggled with. They struggled with this in ancient times as well. And as a matter of fact, this is a pretty significant theme in the book of Isaiah. So if you're taking notes, write down Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 58. And these are two other significant places where God comes to the the people and says, I am sick of your worship. I am sick of your sacrifices because you're missing the entire point. And I would encourage you to to read those two chapters this week and just see how it is so similar to what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. So this then leads us to see what is the fruit of the Pharisees' legalism? What is coming out of this? And Jesus identifies for us one fruit in particular, though I'm, I'm sure he could have unearthed others. But the one that he calls them out for is hypocrisy calls them hypocrites. So this is another term we're probably pretty familiar with. Christians get called hypocrites quite often, that that we don't do the things that we say we believe, that our our beliefs don't line up with our lives. Probably 100% of us are guilty of hypocrisy in some way, shape, or form. Maybe today, right? So we're going to struggle with hypocrisy and making sure that what we do externally is true to what we believe from God's word. And now, there is a spectrum of hypocrisy that we see in Scripture. We see the Pharisees come to Jesus at times, and they're coming with ulterior motives. They're coming to him pretending to be sincere. Oh, Jesus, what do you think about this? And they'll ask him a question. But what they're really trying to do is trap him in his words so that they can accuse him and arrest him. And in those cases, their hypocrisy is very much like from what the root word means. The word hypocrite in the Greek means a play actor. You're acting in a play. It's often associated with wearing a mask because you're playing a character. In those cases, they're playing a role. And they know that they're acting. They're not being sincere. But in Mark 7, we see a different, more insidious kind of hypocrisy. This is worse Because in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees don't know that they're being hypocritical. They have confused drama with reality. They're imagining the play that they have created is the real thing. And they've done so with rigor. And because of this, it's a lot more dangerous So Jesus gets into a specific example of their hypocrisy, Corbin. So let's let's read a little bit of this passage so we can get a sense of what Corbin is. Starting in verse 9, Jesus says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. 
do you sense the irony here that Jesus is, the, the sarcasm? You have a fine way. He is being sarcastic with them. And in the original Greek, it's even more pointed. If, if you like to nerd out about that kind of thing, find me afterwards and, and we can talk about that. Jesus is not mincing words with them. They know that he is coming after them. Jesus says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So what is Corban? Corban is a gift that a person would pledge to the temple. They would pledge this gift to God. And it's like a deferred gift. So they pledge the gift, but they don't immediately give these material goods. They still retain uh, possession or oversight of these goods. And then when that person dies, the goods go to the temple. So the problem that's going on here is when these people are pledging the gift but retaining the, you know, the oversight of the gift, they are keeping those material goods from blessing other people in ways that God would have them to bless other people. And Jesus specifically calls them out and says, look, your aging parents need help. These guys didn't have 401ks. They didn't have retirement accounts. They didn't have social security. They relied on their family to care for them as they aged. And so the parents are getting old. They don't have any way of supporting themselves. They're like, son, would you help us out here? And the son's like, you know what, mom and dad? I would love to help you out, but I've pledged all of this stuff to the Lord. I'm giving it to God's temple so that it can be used in worship. And Jesus says, absolutely hogwash. That's not worship. That's you trying to look pious. That's you making a vow that, oh, I can't break a vow. But you are not using those goods to bless people and care for people that are in need. So Jesus, he sees through what they're doing. He sees through their greed and their desire to withhold goods from people who are in need. And so Corbin is just one example. Jesus says there are many others. We don't know what all of them are. But this is one example of how their traditions missed the entire point of the law. The law was not given so that God could see who's naughty and who's nice. The law was not given so that people had an opportunity to show how good they were and earn their keep in God's kingdom, demonstrate how worthy they are of being in God's kingdom. The law was given for the good of God's people. If you're taking notes, write down Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. These are two beautiful psalms about the goodness of God's law, what it does how it affects and transforms us when we take the law to heart. The law was given to show the people how to live in loving community with each other and demonstrate the glory of God to the nations. 
And the fifth command, which is the one that Jesus is highlighting here about honoring your parents, this is an example of this in microcosm. The, the fifth commandment is a commandment that comes with promise. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is not a promise to individuals saying, hey, if you're nice to your parents, you're going to have a long life. It's a promise to a community saying, if you honor your family, you honor your parents, then you are going to live for generations in the land, the promised land that I'm giving to you. This is what your community, your life has to look like if you want to thrive and do well. You're going to have to live self-sacrificially in love toward those who have needs. Okay, we've, we've dumped on the Pharisees quite a bit. So let's take a left turn and let's think about legalism in our own lives. What does legalism look like for us? How do we miss the point I can tell you from my own life that legalism is something I have struggled with and continue to struggle with in certain ways. I grew up in a particular Christian community that was very prone to legalism in the kinds of rules that it came up with surrounding all kinds of normal parts of life. What clothing you wore, how you did your hair, so your outward appearance, uh, the kind of media that you would take in, what movies you watch, TV shows, what music you listen to, and if music had drums, it was evil or even demonic, or school choices. The only choice you could make was to homeschool or you're wrong. Definitely not public school, but even Christian school was looked down on as that's not God's way. There were lots of rules surrounding what dating or more appropriately courtship should look like. As you're pursuing a partner for life, there are all these things that you must make sure you do correctly if you want God to bless you, if you want to do it God's way. Now, all of those things that I just listed, you might be thinking, well, those are areas of your life where you do need to be careful. You do need to think about how you can apply God's word with wisdom to those areas. So it's not like we shouldn't have rules surrounding them. Absolutely. The problem is when we take all of these areas of our life and we start trying to control them with rules to make sure that everything we do is just so because we want God to cause certain outcomes in our life. And as a result of, of this way uh, of thinking through my formative years, I was a very self-righteous person. I definitely looked down on people that didn't hold to the same standards that I held to in all of these areas and other areas. I was literally like the Pharisee in Jesus's parable that says, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like that lousy tax collector over there. What a loser. I'm just so thankful that I'm awesome. And, and I thought that I was part of this elite Christian group that God was genuinely impressed with. And I even felt sorry for other Christians who didn't know all the things that I knew, that they were missing out on the blessings of God that I knew how to make sure would happen if you lived a certain way. And so what I found out as I, as I grew older and grew in my faith is that my legalism was a type of prosperity gospel. That if I follow the rules, 
God is going to bless me in these ways, that by following the right rules, I could guarantee certain outcomes, that by following the right rules, I could avoid certain types of suffering. I could just dodge that bullet. I even felt at times like God owed me because of how hard I worked and how good I was and all the rules that I followed. What about in your lives? What has it looked like or what does it look like? Maybe some of you can relate to the way that I grew up in in that kind of fastidious rule-keeping mindset. Maybe you uh, are familiar with what it feels like to be proud of how righteous you are or to think that your acceptance with God and with other people is based on your performance of following certain rules. Or maybe you're just thinking, man, I'm just glad I'm not like Zach and I'm not a legalist and I I don't worry about following all these, these crazy rules. But The truth is that all of us struggle with legalism in some way, shape, or form in our lives. And I don't know, there's many things that that might look like for you. Maybe it is that you think, you know, I can't be friends with that person because they believe, fill in the blank, this way. Or I can't can't develop relationships with this person because they vote this way. Or I don't want to, I don't really want to spend time with these people because they don't think about social justice the way I do. Maybe you have been tempted to think that the good things that you enjoy in life are a result of how good you are. That they're a reward for your awesomeness. Maybe you look down at people that hold different positions than you. And the the irony of of our time and culture is that you don't even have to be a religious person to be legalistic in the way that you think about life. I mean, you can look at social media and see this pretty quickly, that there are people who are not Christians in any way, shape, or form, atheists, who are legalists in the sense that they believe people's acceptance is based on how well they follow the rules of our culture, of our society. They have adopted certain things from religion, such as the idea of morality. They've just redrawn the lines of morality pretty substantially. But then they've also taken legalism and said, if you don't follow our rules, you're cut off. You're canceled. You're not accepted. Your acceptance is based on how well you do the things we say you should do. So legalism isn't going to be limited just to religious people. Anybody can adopt this mindset of making sure that they're accepted based on their goodness, their ability to follow certain expectations. This does beg a question, though, because I've been kind of ragging on rules, right? But is there any place for extra-biblical boundaries in our lives? What is that supposed to look like? And there, there absolutely is a place. We all know that we have to use wisdom in our lives Even our culture knows that we have to use wisdom to put in certain boundaries for the good of ourselves and for other people. So let me just give you one example. When my parents were a young couple, they made the decision that they were not ever going to partake of alcohol. 
And they didn't make this decision because they had read all of the passages in Scripture that have warnings about alcohol or that talk about how drunkenness is actually a sin. There's plenty of passages in Scripture that deal with that. They didn't make this decision because they grew up in a home where their parents said, alcohol's bad, don't drink it. The reason that they came to the conclusion that they needed to not ever partake in alcohol is because growing up, they watched it decimate their families. Whether that was a parent or a grandparent or their uncles or their cousins, they watched people fueled by sin just spiral into all kinds of of horrible things. And it created brokenness in their homes and in their, their extended family. So they saw that and they said, We know our family history. We're not going to have anything to do with that. We're not going to give that a chance in our home. It's not worth it. There's too much at stake. So they decided we're not doing alcohol. I think that's wisdom for them to make that choice. That's not necessarily legalism. The Bible doesn't say never drink alcohol. But for them, that's a boundary that they put in place. So what's the difference between legalism and healthy boundaries? Legalism is where I take my convictions and I say, this applies to everybody. You do what I think is right. If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. All Christians must abide by all of these rules or you're not accepted. You're not as good. You're not pleasing to the Lord. A healthy boundary would say, how can I prayerfully apply my scriptural convictions to my life? So don't hear me say that all boundaries are bad. I'm I'm not trying to say that, you know, toss them out and we can just do whatever we want. We can't be careless. We we have to use wisdom. But but how might this rule, let's just take this rule of abstaining from alcohol, how how might it become legalistic? Well, as I said, we, we could say if I have to abstain, everybody has to abstain. Or Maybe we would say, you know, I cannot associate with or foster relationships with other Christians who drink. I'm not going to do that. Or maybe you are willing to to have relationships with people that have this other belief than you, but you're going to think less of them. They're, They're just not as spiritual as me. They don't love God as much as I do. So if we're not careful, we can have good intentions about honoring God and still dishonor him with our attitudes, just as we see the Pharisees in this passage with what they've done with their hand-washing rituals. They wanted to honor God, but it got out of hand. In the last part of this passage, Jesus shares with us the antidote for legalism. I'm not going to read all of these verses, but let's look uh, at verse 15 and then verses 18 and following. Jesus says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things 
come from within and they defile a person. We could summarize this passage like this. Sin does not originate outside of us, but it originates within. Our salvation does not originate within us, but it originates outside of ourselves. When I was in high school and college and even into my graduate study years, I began to see people walk away from their faith, turn away from the Lord. People that I had grown up with, people that grew up in similar circles to me, people I was acquainted with, people that I knew of that grew up like I did. I started seeing people walking away from Christ in droves. And I was really confused by this at first because I thought, these are people that have done all the right things to keep the influences of the world at bay out of their lives. They didn't go to public school. They didn't listen to music with drums. They didn't watch movies or television shows unless they're family friendly. They didn't put themselves in situations where they would be tempted to compromise their sexual purity. Right? I could list all these things that they've done to make sure externally, I've got all the rules. But I remember at some point a light bulb moment where the truth of what Jesus says here really hit me. That we can build all the walls we want around our lives and put as many fences up as we like. We can, we can be busy playing whack-a-mole, trying to hit all of these dangerous things around us. And if we ignore the sin that is already festering in our hearts, then we don't stand a chance against it. The sin's already there. We don't have to keep the sin out. And yet legalism is often tempted to think, I have to perform all of these things to stay clean so that I'm not defiled. Jesus says what comes from within is what defiles us. That's where the sin is. And Jesus tells us what we actually need. That we actually need a new heart. And God is telling us, even back in the Old Testament, about the new covenant that is coming eventually. In, in, in Ezekiel, he says, I am going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to write my law on your heart so that you desire to walk in my way, so that you want to do the things that are on my heart. And the only way that we have this heart is through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who has lived that perfect life where he did keep the law. And when he died, he took our sin, all of it on himself, gave us his righteousness. And so now we can have a new heart that actually wants to walk in his ways. And the only way this is going to work for us is if we look intently at the grace of God. We, we've talked about some of the things that the law was not meant to be. But the New Testament says that the law was meant to point us to Jesus. It was meant to show us that we need him. That there is no way that we can be free or good by keeping the law. But our freedom comes through Christ. Only Jesus can cause the transformation in our hearts that the law requires but cannot affect. 
I heard one pastor say that a lot of times Christians will treat rules like they're the miracle grow of our Christian faith. Like if you sprinkle enough of the right rules, if they're, if they're high enough standards, if they're, if they're strict enough rules, if we have enough of them and we follow them well, then we're going to grow. That's the idea. But he said in reality, that's like spraying Roundup on our hearts. We're actually killing everything rather than allowing things to grow. So as we wrap things up, There's a number of different ways you might be thinking about this in your own life or responding. Maybe some of you have a similar past to mine and you can feel weighed down by legalism. You can think that your acceptance is contingent on your ability to keep the right rules. Maybe, like me, you're tempted to be proud because you're impressed with how you're doing. And you look down at people who are, you think are not doing as well as you. In either of those cases, I would say, remember the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That you cannot be acceptable based on your performance. And no matter how well you think you're doing, God is not going to accept you based on your performance. But he will accept you based on Jesus's. And maybe you have reacted to legalism around you and so that you're more tempted to throw off rules altogether. And I would say, remember that Jesus says that our obedience to his commands flows from a love for him. So if you've seen people live out legalistically, remember that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We obey God because we love him. I'm gonna ask the... uh, praise team to come back up and let's pray and then we're going to respond in song. Father, thank you for this time to be in your word together. Thank you for the infinite grace, grace upon grace that is poured out through Jesus. I pray that we would look at that grace and that we would recognize that the only way we're going to grow, the miracle grow for our spiritual lives is actually seeing your grace for us, your love for us, your patience with us. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And Lord, I pray that you would show us how we can walk in the truth of this passage in a way that frees our hearts, that lifts the weight and the burden, and that fills us with the joy that Jesus came to give to us. Jesus, thank you for taking our sin to the cross and thank you for making us right with the Father and for giving us your righteousness. We pray all this in your name, amen.